that a lot of homeowners, when they buy a home, they're buying not just the home, they're buying the neighborhood. And they feel like the neighborhood should be identical to the way it was when they bought it forever because that's what they wanted. And I think that that is kind of just a misplaced entitlement. Yeah, it's an unfortunate thing, I think, that homeowners can band together and make it a lot harder for other people to have access to the housing that they had access to. Right now, the country is short millions of homes. And as interest rates keep would-be homeowners in tenant life, rents are continuing to climb to new highs. In New York, for example, the median rental price in Manhattan hit 4,150 in July. That's the sixth straight month a new record has been set. This is BizNow Reports. I'm Miriam Hall. In this episode, we're hearing from Daryl Fairweather, the chief economist at Redfin. It's not all gloomy. She's speaking about some of the things that make her optimistic about the national housing crisis. And she's talking first here about her surprise that the Federal Reserve's measures appear to have been successful. So far, things are working better than I hoped for. I, when they were talking about a soft landing, that seemed pretty impossible because it's hard to know just based on data what's actually happening in the economy. And all the data you're looking at is always stale. You're always looking at last month's data or last quarter's data. So it was a really difficult task for the Fed to figure out exactly how to hone interest rates to get inflation down without getting the economy into a recession. And it seems like they're gonna they're getting pretty close to nailing it. I mean, it's, it's probably too close to call right now because the Fed just raised interest rates and it's possible that the, that last raise might have some unintended consequences, but so far it's looking pretty good, which is something to celebrate. Is there a possibility that this is just a brief respite or could this be a turning point in terms of the, the housing crisis? When it comes to the hangover from the pandemic, I think this is a sign that we are recovering. We're going to get back to having a healthy economy sooner than later. But that doesn't mean that there aren't other challenges in the economy that have nothing to do with the pandemic. We are facing wars abroad and energy shortages may continue because of that. We also may have more disruptions to the supply chain because of global uncertainty more broadly, and also climate change poses a risk when it comes to inflation too. That's why the Inflation Reduction Act uh, has a large part of it about fighting climate change and making it so that people can afford their energy costs even if gas prices go up. So I think that there are a lot of challenges ahead, but at least this last challenge of the pandemic seems to be uh, resolving itself. I was just speaking to uh, Jonathan Miller this morning who uh, analyzes all the New York data um, and rents in Manhattan are reaching yet another record. He said we're in a record of records in terms of rent prices. It's The median is now 4,150, um, which is the sixth straight month of a record. And he said that it's a lot of it, you can tie it back to Fed decisions and a lot of it is because there are no longer the people who would be buying a house are just not being able to in some cases because of interest rates. Is that something that you're seeing as well? Yes, in Manhattan, Manhattan's a bit special because during the pandemic, New York City was dead. Everybody was talking about how New York may never recover from how many people left during the pandemic. But once the pandemic, uh, you know, people got the vaccine and felt safer, they came right back to New York because New York is one of the most vibrant cities in the entire world and plenty of people would want to live there if they had the chance. Now, on top of that, 
people were coming with savings. A lot of people were saved during the pandemic. Some people saved a lot more than others. And of course, Manhattan's going to attract the wealthiest of the wealthy. And many of those people had their stock portfolios go up during the pandemic or they weren't spending money on other things. So they had extra money saved over. So I think all of that is flowing into the rental market. Also, Manhattan has some special rules and taxation on owning property. So part of this may be what you talked about, a, cal- a recalibration from uh, in, in the rent-to-own formula for Manhattan. That, that might mean in the long run, some of these for sale properties convert into rentals, but for the time being, it does make it a, more tight in the rental market. It's very frustrating for a lot of the real estate community because they're seeing residential rents go up and office occupancy still stay low. So no one can kind of figure it out. I mean, the only explanation is that people came back. It's just they didn't go back to the office. They just came back to the city. Yes, and that office space can't easily be converted into residential space. I mean, it seems like a a natural fix. Like if we have all these offices that are empty, let's turn them into apartments. But the way that offices are laid out and the way that these skyscrapers are built, they're not built to have residents in them full time. There's like a community bathroom and plumbing that goes in the center of the building. There's not a layout to have separate apartments. So it's going to be, I think, a challenge for Manhattan. I, mean, I would expect um, office rents to continue to fall as residential rates continue to increase. And I think, you know, on the margin, anything new that gets built in Manhattan is going to be more likely to be residential compared to office space. But that existing office space is kind of stuck there. Obviously, Manhattan is a um, is a very special market, as you said. But I was at an affordable housing event this morning um, and the head of um, impact investing at Nuveen uh, was saying that even in places like Mississippi, uh, where they are acquiring an asset. There's like a wait list of 50 people. This is really like a problem across the, the country in a way. Yes, and, and a big part of it is that we've underbuilt housing for the last decade. And right now, millennials are forming households. So that's adding extra demand on top of the fact that there's extra money flowing around in the economy um, from inflation. So it's kind of just been like a, a, a bunch of a bunch of effects that are coming together to make this so severe right now. Do you have any statistics on how how big the deficit is in terms of the apartments that we need or the housing that we need? There are various numbers that float around for New York, but nationally, do, do you know what we're looking at? Uh, in terms of total number of housing units, we're four million short, according to Freddie Mac. That's extraordinary. And that, that number is a little bit stale because that was as of 2020. So do you expect it could be worse than that? Yes. Is this all still because of we didn't build a lot after the, the global financial crisis? Are we still feeling the effects of that? Yes, yes, we are still feeling the effects of that. I mean, there was the, the recession last time lasted a very long time. The housing crash started around 2007 and the housing market didn't recover in, or didn't even start to turn into a recovery until 2012. So for that whole time, you know, builders were had no reason to build because the housing market was so cold at that time. And then even as the housing market started to turn around, builders didn't ramp up super quickly because they were cautious. They didn't get, want to get burned again like they did last time. So it, it's been a, a real problem, this lack of construction and I think it kind of points to the need for a more, um, you know, planned approach when it comes to building housing. Have we started to see construction and the production of new house, housing kind of reach a pace where this the gap could conceivably be closed at some point? Uh, 
You know, one thing I'm optimistic about is that there's been a lot of zoning reform, especially in California. They eliminated single family zoning and you can now build ADUs on virtually any any lot. And from what I've, I've seen and heard, a lot of people are taking advantage of that. So I think that at least in California, where the housing market is is most unaffordable compared to other parts of the country, uh, the, that the the groundwork has been laid for that gap to be closed more quickly than it would have been. I think it's still going to take time, but making the land available and making it just easier for builders to build is the common sense thing to do to to get more housing built. So California, you were saying zoning improve. Any other parts of the country? Yeah, Oregon eliminated single family zoning. Minneapolis did as well. There are some other like more local areas that have have made some real strides in terms of making it easier to build. Uh, But California is the most it has has like almost all of the deficit compared to the rest of the country. When you're looking at the country as a whole, uh, it's like 4 million housing units short, but like all those housing units are basically in California. There are other parts that have housing surpluses, which brings the net number uh, down a bit, but then California has such a severe housing shortage that they make up for it. You know, they tried to do this um, in New York, in the suburbs of New York, because Manhattan's always kind of blamed for the shortage, but the governor did try and push legislation that would kind of ban single family housing in certain areas in the suburbs surrounding New York, and they pushed back against it so hard that it was killed. Why do you think there is that kind of hatred of the idea? Uh, I think that a lot of homeowners, when they buy a home, they're buying not just the home, they're buying the neighborhood, and they feel like the neighborhood should be identical to the way it was when they bought it forever because that's what they wanted. And I think that that is kind of just a misplaced entitlement. When you buy a home, you're really only buying your home. And these zoning laws don't change what you can do with your own lot. It only changes like what other people are able to do. So um, yeah, it's an unfortunate thing, I think, that homeowners can band together and make it a lot harder for other people to have access to the housing that they had access to. And the, the real reason that they had access to this housing is because they were just there first. They bought it when it was more affordable and they've benefited from how much it's gone up in value. What do you think it would take? Um, like, what do you think needs to happen in the national discourse? Well, we need to make it so that you can actually build dense housing on the plots of land that are zoned for single family. We talked about that. Um, reducing red tape certainly helps. Um, sometimes neighborhood commissions can like kill projects just by um, holding them up with community review and things like that. But then also I think that we may want to go so far as to promote social housing during economic downturns. Like right now, no housing is getting built because interest rates are high and people are worried about a recession. And that would be a great time for a government entity to step in and like subsidize a new project or themselves develop a project uh, because it's not like they're facing much competition in terms of acquiring land and getting materials at this moment. Explain when you say social housing, what do you mean by that? So it's hard, it's harder to like before you talked about how some housing is luxury housing and should we be trying to advocate for that housing to be affordable housing? And what I'm saying is that one way to kind of balance that need for affordable housing with also wanting to build, you know, any kind of housing, whether it's luxury or any or any other price is to prioritize that affordable housing that's government subsidized during times like now where private developers are bowing out because of the market conditions. So it's not a full freeze up of the whole development community. There is something and it's the sort of stuff that we actually need. Right. 
You know, a lot of developers say any development is good, any housing development is good, it helps, it pushes more into, into supply and obviously supply demand is what causes rent hikes. Is, what, what do you think about that? I, I agree with that, but it's hard to convince people that's true because there's a really long delayed effect. Like most affordable housing is old housing. It's housing that was built decades ago that used to be luxury housing, but is just aged into being more affordable because it's not you know top of the line anymore. And if we don't build those new projects now, even if they are like more high end, that means we don't have that supply of older homes decades from now. And we need to like continuously just make sure that new housing is getting built so that the housing exists decades into the future when we really need it. Another big point that people have made is that like, why don't we have a national rental subsidy? Why don't we have a rental support program that is being provided across the country? Uh, I, I believe that providing rental assistance is an efficient way to redistribute wealth. Like everybody needs housing. So giving people housing, especially people who are on the brink of homelessness is just a common sense way to make sure that you know there is that safety net but you have to still address the supply problem because you can give people vouchers or give people subsidies but they still need to find a place to live and they may be competing against other people with vouchers and then the price goes up and that voucher is in effect not as valuable anymore so uh yeah i think that we should have rental assistance but it's not going to work effectively unless we also build housing so it's kind of like got to be a two-pronged approach right right why do you think there hasn't been a rental program? There is there is rental assistance in the United States, but it's not fully funded. There's like there are huge wait lists for it. I mean, I th- I thought it was being discussed at a national level at one point. It just right to fully come. fund it. Yeah. Well, I think I think the reason it hasn't happened is because um, is because it wouldn't be effective unless we also build the housing. And building the housing is like the really expensive part of that two pronged approach. So doing just one of the two prongs isn't going to be so effective in that that prong of building housing is a much higher political hurdle. You know, it feels like the climate crisis, as you mentioned before, it's it, it, it became really bad really quickly um, and it is on the minds of people more than it ever has been before where do you see like the big challenges of addressing the climate crisis in terms of for renters yes i think that in our housing policy we should worry about climate change like one simple example is with heat waves how you know many apartments don't have air conditioners but you know we could be subsidizing something like that so that people are living in housing units that are more resilient to heat waves Uh, But also, once you install air conditioning, the value of apartments goes up, which in effect would make the housing pricier, right? So, and also people are demanding to live in areas that have the air conditioning, then there'll be more demand, the more heat waves there are. So these kinds of things are definitely going to impact housing and uh, where people want to live and also the cost of housing. Is anyone um, doing that well? Like I know you said, for example, when we talk about rezonings, like California is doing some rezonings, but are there any parts of the country where you think they have policies that are, are going to be effective and efficient? Um, I know that a lot of municipalities are really thinking hard about these problems. I, I sat on a, a seminar with the League of New Jersey municipalities last year, and they were really grappling with these issues. I think what's challenging for governments is that it's what one locality does affects another locality, right? Like if one um, city in New Jersey, for example, doesn't do a good job of mitigating against flood risk, 
and then their residents end up getting displaced because their apartments are flooded and they go to the next neighboring municipality, then their housing costs go up. So I think we, we need kind of more coordination and it has to be something that everybody plans for. I'd like to see more housing built in naturally resilient places to climate change so that we have the supply of housing for people who, ha who may end up being displaced. Where would you rate your optimism levels now? What's, what's your sentiment index in terms of the housing environment and our ability to kind of get out of this crisis? Well, one thing that makes me optimistic is remote work because I think that it is becoming less important that people live in these job centers that have such high housing costs. Like before, if you wanted to get a tech job, you had to live in San Francisco or it was a big advantage to live in San Francisco and that's not true anymore, which means that people just have more options when it comes to where they want to live and that brings more job opportunities to parts of the country that already have low housing costs, like in the Midwest and in the, in the Rust Belt. Not so much in the Southwest anymore, those prices have gone up a lot, but I think people have more choice over where to live now than they did before, which helps individuals find more affordable housing, even if as a whole, we're not like still doing a great job of building more affordable housing in the most expensive areas. That's Daryl Fairweather. She's the chief economist at Redfin. More stories on the housing crisis are at biznow.com and I've left some links uh, to various stories in the show notes. I'm Miriam Hall. Thanks for listening.